good evening. It's a privilege to be with you all again. It has been some time. I see some familiar faces and I see some new faces. If you don't know me, my name is Mark Evans. It is my privilege and delight to be ministering God's Word to you this evening. And with that said, we'll go ahead and jump right in. Tonight's scripture reading will be from Psalm 34. If you have your Bibles, please feel free to turn to Psalm 34. We'll be in the first 10 verses. I'll read those verses, we'll pray, and we'll go ahead and then get started. If you would, please, as you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And these are the words of God. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. <clears throat> the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Please be seated. And let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do praise You for Your Word, that it is living and active, that through it You reveal to us the way of salvation, that You reveal to us, indeed, just how good You are. And so help us to taste and see. Help us to look to Christ, that we might be rooted in Him and built up in Him and established in the faith as we are taught. We ask all these things for Your glory. And in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, deception in a time of war is not all that uncommon. For instance, during World War II, America enlisted some Hollywood set designers to build basically what is a fake suburban village. It spanned 26 villages, it had streets, it had houses, it had the whole nine yards. It was in Seattle, Washington, and it was to camouflage what was really there, and that was a B-17 bomber factory. Even had a street aptly named Synthetic Street. In another example, in one of the failed plots to assassinate Hitler, a German general gave to one of the pilots who was flying with Hitler a very expensive bottle of brandy. But within the bottle was a bomb with a fuse set for 30 minutes. Obviously, the plot did not work. But my favorite, perhaps most comedic example of all, comes from one of Shakespeare's plays, from the play Hamlet, where the main character, Hamlet, is dialoguing back and forth with a character named Lord Polonius. And then out of nowhere, Hamlet turns to Lord Polonius and he says, Hey, have you ever noticed how the sun can make maggots out of dead dogs? And Hamlet was, of course, pretending to be insane, pretending to be a madman to gain an advantage, as Polonius would later say, Though this be madness, there is a method to it. Well, I say all this because madness is the method behind Psalm 34. 
as you can see from the title of the psalm, if you glance at that, it reads, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. So let me quickly set up the background of this psalm before we dive into it fuller, because the drama of this story comes from 1 Samuel 21. When David is on the run from the bloodthirsty Saul, and David narrowly escapes Saul. Saul's trying to kill his life, but the only problem is he runs into the only person who's probably worse than Saul, his enemy, King Achish, king of Gath. And so it was for David out of the frying pan and into the fire, as they say. And Achish and his men, upon recognizing David, they put two and two together, and they go, oh, wait a minute. Is this the very same David? Is this that same guy that everyone's been talking about? Is this that same David they sing all those irritating songs about how many of my men he's killed in battle? How he's slain thousands of my men in war? And so you can see the predicament. David, the Lord's anointed, the chosen one of Israel to sit upon the throne, is more like a sheep among wolves. His destruction at the hand of the enemy seems inevitable were it not for the theatrics of a lifetime. Because what does David do? If you can't fight your way out, you fake your way out. So David, in short, acts a fool. He acts like a madman. He lets the spittle run down his beard. He starts talking nonsense. And with that, David is delivered. Achish looks at that and he he delivers one of the great lines. He says, hey, I've got plenty of lunatics surrounding me. I don't need any more lunatics. David, you may go free. And that is the background to Psalm 34. And admittedly, it is a very unique background. It's not the background you or I would choose to write a song of praise, is it? But from that comes this very Word of God, this gloriously inspired psalm of praise to God for His deliverance. And so as we walk through this psalm, we'll go through in three parts. Firstly, we'll look at magnifying the Lord in the first first three verses. Secondly, we'll look at the deliverance of the Lord. And then lastly, we will look at the goodness of the Lord. But the main point of it in all of it is this. To God be the glory alone. Soli Deo Gloria. So firstly, magnify the Lord. Verses 1 through 3. What is so telling to me about this is that David does not begin this psalm by recounting his version of the story. By retelling his trickery. By saying, hey, you're not going to believe the mess that I got into down at Gath with King Achash. You're not going to believe this story. Rather, his first impulse, his resolve, verse 1 is simply this. I will bless the Lord. When? At all times. At any time. God's praise will continually be in my mouth. Charles Spurgeon said in commenting on this passage, David knows to whom the praise is due and what is due, and for what, and when. David has purposed it in his heart that this is an occasion to praise the Lord. And notice, not just now, this particular incident, but at all times, in all circumstances, praise to God will flow from his lips. And how often is it? The cry of our hearts is, I will praise God, yes, if and when my circumstances change. But David says, it's not my circumstances, it is my heart that has changed. And my soul cries out to my Lord with my lips. And that's we think that it's because it's from his lips. This is just lip service. Verse 2 goes on to clarify. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. David is not putting on some kind of religious show to impress others. 
Rather, his praise is emanating from his soul. As the second clause goes on to to say, this is a praise that's ill-suited for the proud. That certainly the proud man can boast, but he can only boast in himself. And certainly the proud man can hear, but he can only hear his own voice. And he cannot hear and be glad in the goodness of the Lord and resound in praise. No, this is a praise that is only fitting for the humble, for the downcast, for the lonely. David offers up himself as but one living example of blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so this evening, as that is you, if you find yourself downcast and lowly and afflicted, hear the word of the Lord. See this testimony of His grace. That our great God is the Father of mercies. And He comforts us, not in some, but in all of our afflictions. And His consolations cheer our soul. That there is not one affliction that is beyond the reach of God's mercy to us in Jesus Christ. He is our hope. Because indeed, how easy, as I was thinking about this, it may be for us to glorify the Lord because we got the job that we so earnestly desired. We received the diagnosis that we were hoping for. We got that financial boost that we were praying for, of which, of course, it is only right and fitting to praise the Lord for such things. But that's not the background of Psalm 34, is it? David's deliverance was, humanly speaking, by way of his own trickery, by way of his own deception. And yet, when he looks back upon it, it's all through this filter. Praise be to God alone. To God be the glory alone. David continues on, lifting up his heart to the Lord. But this time he desires a a multitude of voices, a chorus. As you look at verse 3, David says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And this is that excellent fruit that when you are boasting in the Lord and the Spirit blesses it, you won't be the only one boasting in the Lord for very long. That it is not a solo project. David says, let's let's exalt Him together. And so we come then to the heart of the matter in verse 3. What is the group project? What is it all about but this? To magnify the Lord. And when you take a step back and, and you think about that, you ponder it, that is a most peculiar statement. I mean, think of what David is, is saying. David is saying, come and make God great with me. David is saying, come and make much of God. Glorify Him with me. And not only that, David is enlisting the praises of lowly, humble, downcast people to make much of the infinitely great God. I remember in teaching our, our oldest son, Math, more so my wife, and introducing him to the concept of multiplication. And just as it's sinking in that two times two so readily magnifies into four, and three times three so readily magnifies into nine, and so on and so forth, I can recall his utter confusion when we introduced multiplication by the number one. That whether the number's two, or three, or nine, or nine hundred, you multiply it by one and it doesn't do anything. It just stays the same. It doesn't magnify at all. And I think sadly, friends, we fall into that same disappointment in the Christian life, thinking, how could I? How could I, just one lowly person, how could I truly glorify the one who is forever glorious? How could I truly magnify the one who is forever blessed in Himself as Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, friends, hear what the psalmist is saying. He's saying the time is now and always to lift our hearts up to the Lord and to know that He is truly glorified by our praise. 
And hear what the psalmist is also saying. That you are not ever just one lowly person in isolation. You are, you are a member of the greater body that is the glorious body of Christ. The body that is joined and knit together, growing up into the fullness of God. That God has purchased you as an individual, but not merely as an individual. But that we might be a family who would glorify Him through the Son and by the power of the Spirit. And so could you echo David? Could you say, yes, I will magnify the Lord at all times? Could you echo David in this church and in your homes and in your experiences and say, yes, come and magnify the Lord with me? Children, I'm sure you have played with a magnifying glass before. My son just this afternoon was playing with a magnifying glass. Maybe for scientific experiments, but if you're like my son, it's probably just to try and fry ants on the concrete. But whatever its use, you pick up a magnifying glass, kids, and you notice that it makes everything look bigger. Everything looks larger when you look through it. Well, children, you should know something. Children, you should know that your life is to be but a magnifying glass. That you are made to make much of God. To glorify God. Whether it's in obeying your parents. Whether it's in doing all things without grumbling and complaining. Children, in Christ you can and will glorify this great God of yours. So, David magnifies his Lord. Secondly, we will look at the Lord's deliverance. Verses 4-7. through Look at verse 4. David says, I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. So David goes on to specify why he's making this great boast. And you see this threefold pattern. Asking, answering, answering, deliverance. And David's point is, hey, all I did was call. I called, God answered me. And again, I have to ask the question, how would we write this song? How easy would it be to say, yes, I delivered myself by my quick wits, by thinking on my feet. Yet look again at verse 6. David writes, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. David says, I did all the crying. God did all the answering. And so it asks of us an immediate question. How freely, how readily do you approach God? How confidently do we draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace in a time of need? As David says, I wasn't calm, I wasn't complacent. I cried out to Him. God, help me. Is that our faith's impulse? To look to God expecting His kind covenantal answers to our prayers. That as the Shorter Catechism says, that we come to Him as children to a Father who is able, who is ready to help us. But you can also see why David is abounding in praise in light of just how awesome, how comprehensive, how complete God's deliverance was. If you look again at verse 4, it says God delivered David from not some, but all his fears. Verse 6, God delivered David, in this case via the angel of the Lord, as the next verse says, but God delivered David from not some, but all of his troubles. In a sense, you could say God delivered the whole man. That is, God delivered David from real, physical harm, as his life was in imminent danger, and God delivered David from the internal anguish and distress and anxiety and fear. In other words, there is no halfway deliverance with our great God. He made the whole man, and He rescues the whole man. And let me be clear. This is not to say that God has promised us, or promised you, a life that is free from troubles or tribulations. 
You need only continue to read through the Psalter and you will see time and time again lament after lament and mourning and mourning. Or just read through the rest of this psalm which says many are the afflictions of the righteous. But let us equally hear and rejoice that ultimately there is no halfway deliverance with our great God. And this is not true because of David, but because of the son of David, the one who always blessed the Lord, the one whose fear of the Lord was his very delight. And yet he was not delivered, but rather he was delivered up. As Romans 4 says, he was delivered up for our trespasses. That the holy, innocent, and undefiled, he was the one put into the hands of godless men, not at Gath, but at Golgotha, and that by his stripes we might be healed, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that Jesus, unlike David, he did not feign his way out of danger, but rather with his face like flint, his heart was wholly set on doing his Father's will, of doing everything to accomplish the redemption of you and I. It's as that great hymn says, He to rescue me from danger. What? What did he do? He interposed his precious blood. And so, friends, he is our deliverance. He is our full deliverance. Through him, the whole man, body and soul. Through Christ, our alienation from God. The sin that separates us with its guilt and condemnation and the pains of eternal death are not partially, but fully taken away. And how is it I, how is it you, can be certain that the light of God's countenance will shine upon you with favor, with blessing and not curse, but through Jesus Christ and Him alone? How can I be certain in my sufferings, my tribulations, that when I cry out to God, that I would be heard? Because Christ was heard. As Hebrews says, that He offered up prayers with loud cries and tears to God who was able to save Him. And He was what? He was heard because of His reverence. And moreover, God vindicated Him and resurrected Him and seated Him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. It is through Him that we have access to this great God of ours. And David points us forward to that great hope as you look at verse 5. That those who look to God, not simply David alone, but those who look to God, all the faithful who look to Him, are radiant and will shine and their faces will never be ashamed. And we see two things here. Firstly, we see that in Christ, there will never be a vain look to God. We will never say, oh, why did I trust so much? Why did I put so much hope in Christ? Why did I put so much dependence upon Him? That was futile. That was, that was foolish. No, the Scriptures repeatedly say, He who looks to Him will never, never be put to shame. And so if you're here tonight, how simple that exhortation is. Look to Christ. Fathers, look to Christ. Mothers, look to Christ. Husbands, look to Christ. Children, look to Christ. In hardships and afflictions, look to Christ. And hear what the psalmist says, that will never be a futile, wasted, vain look. Secondly, not only unashamed, but as verse 5 says, those who look to God are radiant. They will shine. They will beam forth. And we must ask, why? Why would we shine? Why will our faces shine? Well, notice the psalmist does not say, look to the mirror and you'll shine. Look at yourself and you'll shine. Look within yourself and stare at all your problems in endless self-absorption and you will shine. Look to the world's wisdom and you will shine. 
No, friends, we see that this shining, this radiance is a reflected glory. That those who look to Him are those who reflect the glory of the triune God. This, of course, is a work that has begun now. As Ephesians says, says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so with unveiled faces, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. As it's so often said, we become like what we worship. And so as we worship this glorious, radiant God beholding Christ, we will likewise radiant both in the present and above all pointing forward to that day when we will see Him and so be like Him. It's an astounding truth. It can only be explained by God's free grace that to God be the glory alone does not mean that God alone is glorified. But because He has glorified His Son and you are in Him, you reflect that glory. And so, we've seen the call to magnify the Lord. We've seen the Lord's deliverance. Lastly, we've saved the best for last. Let us look at the goodness of the Lord in verses 8 through 10. I remember I had the opportunity to go down to uh, spend some time with a missionary of my friend, a missionary friend, uh, for a couple of weeks down in Guadalajara, Mexico. And I remember during my stay there, I can recall he, he introduced me to so many customs and traditions that, of course, were totally new to me, totally foreign to me as a native Texan. But I distinctly remember what he was most jazzed about, what he was most excited about, and he kept raving about, was for me to try a Mexican sauce, you might be familiar with it, it was new to me, called mole. I never heard of mole before. And believe me, I'm usually up for anything. I took a look at this mole, which in appearance, it basically has the look of drizzled motor oil. And then on top of it, when you read the word mole in American, in, in, in not English, but in American, it reads like the word mole. And so I said, hey, look, friend, I, I'm, I'm all for things usually, but I'm not going to go near anything that reads like mole and looks like motor oil. But he prevailed upon me, as if over and over again to say, Mark, just, just taste it. Just taste it. Just taste and see. Taste and see. And so I did. I tried it, and my, my palate was opened up to no less than 20 ingredients of blended goodness, of chili pepper paired with chocolate, of peppers accented with tomatoes, of cloves followed by the sweetness of dried fruit, and so on and so on and so on. And friends, that's the psalmist's point in verse 8. Just taste. Just taste and see how good this God of ours is. It's indeed the great tragedy of our sin, isn't it? To think that just as I would have passed on a good dish thinking that I knew better, how much the worse that we would ever think there is a greater good than our great God. Or perhaps this thought that, yes, I'm sure He's good. I'm sure He's somewhat good. I'm sure He's marginally good, but surely He's not as good as the Scriptures tell of Him to be. And David says, be all in. Do you know this God? Do you know of His goodness to you in Christ? Do you know of His kindness to you in your fears and worries? Do you know the abundance of His, of his mercies and the riches of His grace? Do you know that at His right hand are pleasures evermore? And the only way in is to taste and see. When you think of it, do you hear that echo of the garden? Do you hear that great reversal of the garden? That just as Adam grabbed and he, he tasted and his eyes were opened up, but not for blessing, but only for curse and alienation. Now in Christ, the sinner can taste and see and behold the goodness of God. 
As verse 8 continues, making Him your refuge. Which are just great Old Testament ways of saying by faith, know this God, prove Him over and over again, and your palate will never run dry. Your palate will never be dull, for this God is infinitely good. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you should hear the word of the Lord. It is coming to you saying that you have been chewing on cardboard and old rubber tires your entire life and wondering, why does this not satisfy me? Why is this no good? Because you've been looking for good in all the wrong places. You've been hoping for the good in things that can never deliver. And this great God is calling out to you today to repent and to spit out of your mouth your, your pitiful creations of gruel, of slop, and come and taste and see that God is good in Jesus Christ. And such goodness continues with a simple exhortation in verse 9, which says, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. As one commentator put it here, what a clear command. Fear the Lord, but then comes this encouraging reason to fear the Lord. That God fears have ample provision in all respects. I have to confess how easy it is to imitate the world and saying, look, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I am the one who looks out for myself. <clears throat> at the end of the day, I am the ultimate provider for myself. <clears throat> at the end of the day, I am the sustainer of myself. And notice those are all things ascribed to God and God alone. God is the one who watches over us. God is the one who provides for us. God is the one who sustains us. And oh, the misery, the anxiety we bring upon ourselves when we ignore this great promise. And to drive home the point, David says, almost to put it with such a great contrast, as if to say, why would you ever act like you're a beast of the field? Why would you ever act as if you're an animal to roam and prowl about mindless of God and of His goodness and of His provision, stalking for the next kill, the next big thing, the next catch that is going to satisfy you, but for a few moments of digestion. Well, that's for the animals to do. To act that way is to reduce yourself to a mere beast of the field. As you look at verse 10, David writes, The young lions, they suffer want. They hunger. But those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. Such was that lesson the prodigal son had to learn the hard way. I'm sure you remember that story of that son who said, Hey, the only thing better than my father is my father's inheritance. And having gone away and squandered that inheritance, he found himself saying, Oh, if I could just get my hands on some of that pig's food. If I could just get my hands on some of that pig's food. Why? For no one gave him anything. He had the longings of an animal. And it would be a stretch to say that he sought his father. But as it were, it was his father who came running to him. It was his father who embraced him. It was his father who kissed him. And it was in fellowship with his father that he came to realize it's here and only here that I lack no good thing. And friends, are you convinced of that today? That animals may go without, but God promises to those who seek him that even in dire straits, they will not lack what is needful. They will not lack daily bread. And perhaps you'll find yourself saying, hey, guest preacher, I need proof. I would like some proof. I am somewhat persuaded. But when I look at my troubles, when I look at my bills, when I look at my circumstances, when I look at my health, they seem to persuade me otherwise. When the Apostle Paul brings up 
that definitive proof, doesn't he? That God has already provided not merely a good thing, but the greatest. When Paul writes in Romans that God did not spare his own son, but gave, but gave him up for us, for you. And you can see so clearly how that ties into the very next thing that Paul says. Having already given his son, how then? How then will he not also with Christ graciously give you all things? What more can he give? He already gave his son. He already gave the greatest treasure that there is. So let us close with only two things to wrap up Psalm 34 and Soli Deo Gloria. Firstly, God is worthy of all praise. God's great goal is the magnification of himself. All that he does is under that chief end that he would be highly exalted, that he would be magnified, that to him would be all glory and honor and dominion, that God is engineering all things to the praise of his glory. For from him and to him and for him are all things. And so secondly, where do we come in? Well, then how do we fit in? Well, as we said at the start of the service, what is the chief end of man? Well, the chief end of man is to glorify God And enjoy Him forever. But let's get one thing that we must have clear. That does not mean... That does not mean that we can make God more glorious than He is in Himself. As if God was somehow deficient without you or I. As if we are sort of the missing additive to God's incomplete glory. We need to know that we cannot make God more glorious any more than we can fill up a cup of water that is already filled to the brim because God is now and forever perfectly blessed in himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knowing perfect fellowship. So then, where do we come in? We could put it this way. What is the purpose of a violin? What is the purpose of a piano but to make music? What is the purpose of a lamp but to give off light? And so what is the purpose of a man of a woman, of a child. Friends, God has given you a pulse, a heartbeat, a soul, a body, a life, so that you might display His glory, so that you might reflect His glory, so that you might declare His glory, so that your life would be a sermon that preaches day in and day out of the glory of God. And that even if doing something as simple, as mundane, as eating or drinking, it may be done to the glory of Him. And indeed, in this psalm, we find a man who is showing us exactly what that looks like when he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Can you relate to that? Here was David who was in a difficult time, an uncertain time, a fearful time, a tempting time, a trying time, and he said, I have resolved, I will glorify God in this moment. One of the Puritans put it this way, what makes God happy but God himself? I love that. What makes God happy? But God Himself. Now, if God makes Himself happy, how happy shall we be when we commune with Him? When we commune with God in His happiness, God's glory shall make you glorious, and you will have more joy, more joy, not less, more joy in God's happiness than in your own. This is why the Catechism does not stop at saying the chief end of man is to glorify God. That would be woefully incomplete. That's half the equation. It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why? But because they are inseparable. 
Are you convinced of the goodness of God? Let us taste and see that the Lord is good. It is in Christ that God says, if you're hungry, take and eat. He's the bread of life. If you're thirsty, come and drink and you will never thirst again. Let us taste and see that God is good. For to Him be the glory alone. Let us pray.